1 Corinthians 15. Paul has been moving through here, answering a number of the things that the Corinthians had written to him about, using the phrase now concerning or now about. He's addressed things at sacrifice to idols, now about things in the spirit, spiritual gifts. We went through that section. And now he begins in 15.1 by saying, moreover, brethren. So he's introducing a new subject that Paul had saved, no doubt, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit till the end of this letter, uh, because it's a pretty serious thing here. He's been talking to them about a lot of serious issues in the church things related to mostly believers, but this is going to be something that is essential to salvation. And if you just skip down to verse 12, here's kind of the center of the problem. 12, he says, now if, now if Christ has preached to you that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there is a segment, no, some among you, there's a segment in the church that is saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, whether that's uh, of Christ or just others after Christ. We're not exactly sure how far that goes or what exactly the false teaching looks like. But Paul has basically saved that subject to now, and he's going to address it. And it's a pretty serious subject. But what we receive from it is an amazing section of Scripture that the Holy Spirit knew the church would need for every age. So with that kind of background, let's jump into it. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand and by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what he says here is now I'm going to declare to you, brethren, you brothers in Christ, the gospel which I preach to you. I want to remind you about the thing that I preached to you from the very beginning. This is what was from God. It's what is in the scripture. It's what was the apostolic, the universal apostolic message from the beginning. He's, he's going somewhere. He's not just saying this because they're believers. As I said, he's got that background. He knows where he's going. There's a segment in the church that has this false teaching. And his first kind of reminder to them about the reality of the resurrection of Christ is their own spiritual lives. So he wants to say to them, let's remember what I preached to you at the very, the gospel that I preached to you at the very beginning, which carried as an essential piece, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I want to remind you about that. Notice the kind of order here. It was preached to you. Then he said, you received. And he says, you stand in it and by which you are saved. Hey, this, is, this is the thing that you received in the very beginning that changed their lives. They are living proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he hadn't risen from the dead, they would not have received that from the very beginning. They stand in it. It's what has changed them and it's what has saved them. This gospel produced this life in them. It was the first witness in their own lives, as it is of every Christian testimony. Anybody who's saved, who comes to know Jesus Christ, is a witness to the fact that Jesus is alive, resurrected and alive. That's what all of our testimonies are. Whatever all the details are, however sensational or common, I was a sinner. I realized Christ is alive and died for me. And now I'm changed. That's essentially what every testimony is. And Paul is bringing them back to that remembrance. Remember what you received, what I preached. Again, John 1, 12 through 13, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Something happens in a believer's life, when they receive the gospel that isn't of blood, you weren't born into it, it's not of flesh, no man can tell you you receive it, it's something born of God, something supernatural. The God who's alive. And Paul wants them to think about this. He says, and two, if you hold fast to that word which I preach to you, 
unless you believed in vain. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. What he's doing is he's addressing, he's warning those in 12 who are pushing some type of false teaching out about there being no resurrection. And what he says is, okay, if the message that I preached to you from the beginning, that's not what you hold to, then your faith is in vain. It's worthless. The message is worthless and your faith is worthless. This is an essential piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to show as he goes through here, not just a, it's not just an apologetic for the resurrection. It's an apologetic for the resurrection as an essential piece of the gospel of God's message about himself. And he's going to show them, you can't pull this piece out and still have God's message. You can't take this apart and say you still have something that offers you eternal life. This is something serious here that he's calling them to recognize and to hold fast and to believe in. So he goes to verse 3, and he's going to lay out kind of, uh, basically show that the gospel message and the resurrection as an essential part of that, these two things are uh, inextricable. You can't separate them. So he says, for, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. First of all, Paul says, this message did not come from man. I delivered to you what I received. This was divine revelation. I wasn't making this up. It isn't my own message. This is what Paul always claims about his gospel. He claimed the same thing in chapter 11, verse 23. He claims the same thing in Galatians chapter 1. This isn't something I made up. He was being charged different places with making up his own version of the gospel. He says, no, no, no. This is what I received. And it's always according to the scriptures. The gospel message, resurrection included, is... God's testimony about himself and what the scriptures always said would happen. Luke 24, verses 45 through 47, Jesus says this, speaking to his disciples. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. The resurrected Jesus, I think this is pretty remarkable. You would think if a resurrected Jesus is standing in front of you, saying, I want you to be a witness of my death and resurrection and repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he wouldn't need to say much else. But what it says is he divinely opens up their understanding that they can understand the scriptures. The resurrected Jesus Christ in his resurrected body helped them understand the scriptures and what the word of God said about his necessity in dying and being risen again. John the apostle would give his own testimony to that. John chapter 20, it says, then the other disciple who was John who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Notice he says, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Like we had a problem at first. We didn't understand the scriptures. That the scriptures made it clear that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Resurrection was a missing piece of the puzzle for these Jews, particularly in a lot of ways, but in the most basic way, they had all these prophetic passages about the Messiah being a suffering servant. Psalm 16, 22, Isaiah 53. And then they had all these passages about the Messiah ruling and reigning as king. So much so that even today, there's still some Jews who believe, well, there must be two Messiahs. How did these things work out? And what happened was they realized resurrection was the link between the two. It was the key. The suffering servant Messiah who dies 
is also the reigning king Messiah who lives forever. There, there was this peace they were missing. They didn't quite understand. And then they began to see that this is what the scriptures teach. If you want examples of that early apostolic preaching, you can look at what Peter says in Acts 2 in his message. And Acts 13, 26 through 41, those, those were essential parts of the message that this Jesus Christ who died is now risen. And he will be king and judge of all the earth the living and the dead. And it was the message they went out and preached. It was an essential part of the message. And Paul says, how are, you, how are some of you going to say there's no resurrection? I am just giving to you what I received. And it was according to the scriptures. This is God's message about himself, according to the scriptures. And when we say we believe in the death of resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe God's testimony about himself. We believe and God the Father's satisfaction in the work of God the Son. I put my faith in that. And Paul is saying, you can't take that part out of the message. Now he goes into and brings all these other witnesses to bear. Verse 5, he was seen of Cephas, and then by the twelve, Cephas being Peter. He had a particular meeting with Jesus. We don't know the details. Luke 24, 34 tells us of that. The twelve were the apostles, as mentioned, Matthias probably with them, even in the upper room, a number of those times. Verse 6, he says, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He says, Then there was brethren, that's men and women, who followed Christ in his earthly ministry. Some of them 500 at once, he says. We don't know exactly where that was. It could have been at the ascension. We do know Acts chapter 1, verse 3 tells us he was with them for 40 days, teaching them. 40 days, the resurrected Jesus Christ was with his disciples. So any time during that period, he met with apparently big groups of them. Talked with them, taught them, instructed them. And he says many of them are alive even at that point still. The, the majority, over 250 then, I guess are still alive, eyewitnesses of that. And this is the message that they were sharing. Verse 7, he says, After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. James was Jesus' oldest brother in the flesh. That's important because he was one who had not believed in Jesus before his resurrection, but he did believe in Jesus after his resurrection. Apparently he had an interesting meeting with his brother. John 7 talks about them not believing. Galatians 1.19 talks about him being in the faith. And the rest of the apostles, likely that wider group of apostles, people like Barnabas, others who were part of that group. And then verse 80 says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul now brings his own testimony as an apostle. Certainly appeared, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off that horse. He says, as one born out of due time, it could be translated actually as a miscarriage or an abortion. The idea is as an unnatural birth. I also was an apostle, but Jesus did it in a real unique way with me. <laughs> it was unnatural. He, he came in and it wasn't like the other disciples who walked around and followed him for those years. It was something unique God did with his life. But he became a personal witness of the same. Now, Paul can't uh, just stay there. He's got to say something about that. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul wants to magnify that grace of God in his life, thinking about himself being an apostle or a personal witness of this message. You know, the, the grace that turned a literal enemy of God. He said, I persecuted the church. He was a literal enemy of God and his work, but yet 
God turned me into a person who labored more abundantly than everybody in the church. And he said, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Paul realized his life was a unique testimony. He would say in 1 Timothy, he said, this is a faithful saying, chapter 1, worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's saying, if he could be long suffering with me, he could be long suffering with anybody else on the face of the earth. I was a pattern of his grace and long suffering. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone, who is wise be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. But the grace of God did something unique in my life. And, I, and Paul can't deny his own labor. It can seem like pride, but it's not pride, it's worship. That's what's happening here. Paul's essentially saying, the work in my life the fact that I, who could be an enemy of God, could labor more than all the other apostles is a testimony to the grace of God. It is only the grace of God that could do that. So he isn't going to deny the work of God in his own life for some type of false humility. He is going to exalt the work of God in his own life because it's the work of God. It's not him. He said, it was me, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. He, he says simply, not I, but the grace of God which was with me, which is essentially what any of us should be able to say. And we're very careful about acknowledging the things that God has done in our lives. You know, we, we're sensitive about not wanting to be seen, come off as spiritually prideful or seem more spiritual than we are. But the reality is any good thing that God has done in our life, we can acknowledge it and say, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Because the fact that any of us sinners would be changed to labor on his behalf is a testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ being real and alive. And Paul says, I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to act like that hasn't happened. That is the grace of God in my life. It can only be true through the reality of a resurrected Jesus Christ. And, you know, to not lift that up is why Paul wasn't ashamed necessarily of his past in that way, because he wanted to exalt the grace of God in his life. <clears throat> so he brings now his final point to completion in 11. Therefore, whether it is I or was I or they, that's all these witnesses, the apostles or the literal eyewitnesses who received the command of Jesus to go. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The center here is, again, what was preached. Paul's completion, his final point is, the resurrected, a message about the resurrected Christ is the testimony of God about his own son from the scriptures and the only apostolic message there was. There's never anything else. There's no other message. There's not a plan B. It wasn't like the resurrected Jesus said, okay, and then when you go to be a witness of me, if that doesn't work, we're going to do this. There was no other plan. And Jesus didn't need any other plan because he knew if he was lifted up, he would draw men to himself. And he's alive to make sure the plan works. But what Paul is saying is now, 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That's the whole point. No, the Christ that is preached, the only gospel that's preached is the gospel that includes Christ being resurrected from the dead. You take that out, you don't have the gospel. How, how is somebody there saying, this is the central issue of the chapter here, how is somebody there saying that there is no resurrection then? 
because whatever it was, and there's a lot of guesses as to what, what they meant by that, or we were just spiritual people, or um, maybe just not resurrected resurrection for people who die. There's a lot of guesses. We don't know what the particular false teaching was. What we do know in the Bible is that the reality of resurrection was challenged. No matter what people group you are part of, the Jews challenged it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had disagreeing ideas of that. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. We see that in Acts 23 and 26 when Paul's arguing the central part of his message again, resurrection Pharisees are siding with them. Sadducees aren't. It happened in Jesus's day. We see Paul when he gets to Athens in Acts 17. He's preaching to those in Athens, the Greeks. They mock him for this idea of a resurrection, somebody coming out from out from among the dead. What is what is this? What are you talking about? And whatever else was happening, we know in the early church. I think this is important for us. In the early church. While there is still literal eyewitnesses of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was people going around saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead and that these people were crazy. So you're still in good company. This has been the battle of the church from the very beginning. It's going to be the same thing. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to Timothy, shun profane and idle babblings. For they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, and have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Paul's naming guys already, he's saying, whatever they were teaching, the resurrection had already happened in the past. I don't know what that meant for everybody. Sorry, you guys missed it. They had some weird teaching, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus, these were the crazy YouTube guys of their day and age, right? They are out there today, and people say crazy stuff that maybe has a little bit of Bible in it, and then it's like nuts outside of that. And what Paul has to say to Timothy all the way back then is shun profane and idle babblings. They increase the more ungodliness. Shun it. Get away from it. This would literally be Paul saying, Timothy, turn off YouTube. Stop listening to that crap. It confuses people and it, it overthrows the faith of some because they're nuts. And there's always going to be people like that who are going to say stuff that's in direct conflict with God's word and all apostolic doctrine. Paul's actually going to say about these guys in a little bit. Some do not have the knowledge of God. There are people out there talking about God who do not have the knowledge of God, which is why we always say you need to bring your Bible because you shouldn't believe me either. You should be able to read your Bible and say, OK, that's what the Bible's saying, according to the scriptures, first of all, as Paul said. And Paul is saying this is the message from the beginning. So if this is what was preached to you, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection? This is. This is the gospel. If you do not have this, you don't have the gospel. You have a worthless faith. And there are some out there who are going to say those things. Now, Paul is going to take up the case of these false teachers a little bit just to show, again, that the message of the resurrected Christ can't be separated from the gospel message. He says, but if, in verse 13, there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. Paul says, OK, first thing that happens, if that's true, that there's no resurrection, then the apostles and God are false witnesses. Because God testified of his son that he would be raised according to the scriptures and that that's what happened. And we come out as eyewitnesses and said, that's what happened. So if there is no resurrection, then we're false witnesses. Number one, you can't trust any of our message. 16 and 17, he says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Not only that, if there's no resurrection, then we're still dead in our sins. Christ didn't rise from the dead. He was defeated by death. And now there's no answer for sin. So we're still in our sins. There's no hope for cleansing of sins. Again, Jesus would say, therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In John 8, 24, that's another one of those verses of Jesus that people don't like to quote, right? If you don't believe that he is who he says he is, you will die in your sins. Paul says, you can't, you can't take the resurrection out of this. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All those who have passed on before us have perished. They're lost. Our loved ones, those we knew, but faith in Christ, they're gone. They have no hope. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If this is what our hope is and he hasn't been risen from the dead, then we are to be pitied. We are miserable. The Greek word there, pitiable, at the end, is the only other time it's used is in Revelation, where Jesus Christ himself uses it of the Laodicean church, which is miserable, he says. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind. You see yourself as one thing, but you're miserable. Now, certainly that's a bleak picture, but Paul is getting somewhere with them. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise God, that is not true. Our eternal life and resurrection is secured by his eternal life and resurrection. Jesus was the first one, not only who rose from the dead, the language gives us the idea of the first one who was risen out from among the dead. There were other people who were raised from the dead in the Bible, but they died again. Jesus was the first person who died, who came out from among the dead, never to go back. A resurrected body to live forever, eternally, free from death. Lazarus, risen, had to die again. Jesus, risen, never going back. Risen out from among the dead, the first. The Bible calls him our first fruits. It's another picture of Christ. As a Passover lamb, he was our sacrifice who was killed in our place. But as the first fruits, the first fruits was the best of that harvest. You would take the beginning of your harvest and you would come wave it before the Lord. He's the first piece of those harvests that are reaped that pictures a greater harvest to come. Right? Jesus comes out from among the dead as the first fruits. There's going to be a whole lot of other ones just like me. A greater harvest to come. The Bible says our vile bodies will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. He says Jesus is risen from the dead. This is the plan to save the world. There's a lot of talks about a whole lot of things in life. And, you know, we should have our ideas about government and social things. But the reality is, even if we had a perfect social governmental existence we would still die. The greatest problem we have is death. And the plan to deal with death is resurrection. Worked out in the life of Jesus Christ. This is the plan. There is, again, no other plan. This was the hope. There is no other hope. And what Paul says is, how, if this is what is preached, how then can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? This is the central message. Christ is our first roots. He is the first of that harvest yet to come. Think of Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. 
Jesus becomes our forerunner, the first to take a resurrected frame back into the presence of God. Paul says, Christ is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those believers who have died in Christ, always pictured of falling asleep, they haven't yet been resurrected. Christ has. He shows what is going to happen to the rest, the first fruits of that harvest. 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. So Paul here gets to, this is kind of a smaller version of Romans 5, 12 through 21. You could go through there. The idea being, again, that there are only two fountainheads in life. He says, as in Adam, all die. And Adam is human life. Adam was created. Adam was created by God with the ability to reproduce life after his kind. Adam sinned. Then when Adam reproduced life, the life he had to reproduce was fallen, sinful life. Life that was affected by sin and bound to death. And what happens in all of humanity? We are born into the world sinners. And we're going to die. And there's no escaping that. People don't like to think about it. We want to live our lives and not have to focus on it very much. Hope to not think about it very seriously. But the reality is, it's what everybody has to face. And it's what everybody has to have an answer for. And we get shocked when something happens in our lives that forces us to have to grapple with that situation earlier than we assumed we would need to or hope that we would need to. But the Bible says, in Adam, all die. There is a fountainhead of life, and that fountainhead was polluted with sin. And all that it passed down was sinful life. And it's what we see. Sin affects everything and everyone. But that isn't the only part of the story. It says, as everyone in Adam, all will die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Through man, one man came death. Through man also shall be the resurrection of the dead. There's one fountainhead that produces death. But there's another fountainhead. It's a new one. It was never polluted and the life that that fountainhead offers is eternal life. He died on our behalf. He paid for sin. But he rose again. He was received into heaven. And now what he offers is eternal life, his type of life. The type of life that comes out from among the dead, never to return. Resurrection. Through man came the problem, and through another man comes the answer. The Son of Man and the Son of God, who bore our sins, carried our iniquities, was resurrected, and received back into heaven. And what that means is, he who carried the sins of the world, the one who took all sin, however that could possibly be measured, which could only be measured by God, He had my sins. My sins are just a part of the sins of the world. But the one who carried my sins died, was resurrected, and received back up into the presence of God, which means my sins have been taken care of. I, if I was going to be rejected, he would have been rejected because he already carried my sins. Been forgiven. Been accepted. The Bible says all I do is put my faith in his work, and I believe that he is who God says he is, that he is who he says he is. I believe the message that is the only message that's been passed down since the first people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it's the message that we still have and we give to a world. There's a lot of, it's funny, there's a lot of 
religions that believe things that, you know, you could show up to Confucius's tomb or place where Muhammad might be or whatever other religious leader, and if you said they're not in that place, they'd be pretty angry at you. But we'd be angry if it was the opposite, right? Jesus, no, he's not anywhere here. Nobody's got his body. That's the whole point. His body's still alive. It's not in any coffin. It's not in any tomb. It's not in any grave anywhere. There's a new fountainhead of life. He has entered into heaven as my forerunner. Romans 4.25 said, He was delivered up because of our offenses, and he was raised for our justification. So what Paul wants to show now is, not only is that the center of our message and our hope, but it also is the center of our purpose and where God's purpose in the world is going. Verse 23 All shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ at at his coming. So there's a lot of end times discussion kind of based around this passage. We'll read down a little bit. But I think it's important, again, to get always get straight what Paul is saying and what is not saying. Paul was not writing to work out all of our theological, eschatological systems all the time. He was answering a specific issue here with this Corinthian church. The specific issue here is Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, rising out from among the dead in resurrection, never to return, has set in motion the next stage of God's ultimate plan, which we're going to be a part of, which is the defeat of all his enemies, even death. So if you take the resurrection of Jesus Christ away, you take away all of God's ultimate purpose and the ultimate purpose that we're a part of and the defeat of every enemy and death. You can't take it out of the message. That's the whole point. This is a central part of the message. How can anyone say that there is no resurrection? This all falls apart then. So... It's an epic passage. What, what Paul does here is there's not many times that people see all the way till the end of things, right? God gives John a vision. Paul makes a pretty remarkable statement here about those things. But to essentially uh, touch on, we'll say, the plan of the ages is pretty huge. But the, but the central point Paul's making here is that Christ's resurrection is the essential piece to the plan of the ages. Can't, can't take it out. So he says this. We'll read down, then we'll touch on it going through. Each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that he will destroy, or that's being destroyed, is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He's exempted from that. That's the idea. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So here's Paul's kind of point here. He's speaking about verse 23 again. Every man being made alive. But then he says in 23, but each one in his own order. There's an order of resurrections. The word for order has the idea of a band, such as a band of soldiers. And the language here gives us a clear succession of events. So he says, each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's the beginning, right? The first harvest. Then those that are Christ after or afterwards, then those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. So, um, you know, there's some wonderful brethren, all millennial brethren or post-millennial brethren that will see this a little bit differently and they'll tie together particularly Christ coming, then the end together. Uh, But there's an obvious space of years between part one and two of the order there. Christ being risen, 
and then those that are Christ being risen, right? There's been a couple thousand years. Those that are Christ have not been risen yet. So between point one and point two of the first succession, there's a period of time. It, it is also very reasonable to see between point two and point three a period of time as well, which he talks about as the reign of Jesus Christ. We would see that as the millennial reign of Christ, where Christ rules on earth for a thousand years. As he's talking about, he must put his enemies under his feet. Certainly, Paul says Christ is first. Then there is this ordered band of resurrection. The end of it all, Christ reigns, and everyone is brought into subjection to him. Uh, there's a lot of people who want to argue about, okay, what is the order then? Which piece do you go where? Uh, those that are Christ that is coming, that is coming pre-trib or post-trib. None of those positions are actually fully established here. Uh, what, what Paul is speaking about, again, is a certain type of order to get to an end game and the process. Uh, there is an order... You have to find that from other places in Scripture to kind of put it together. So I will simply say this. What the Bible does say is there's, it gives us two categories, the first resurrection and the second resurrection, or the second death, it calls. The first resurrection is all those who are resurrected, beginning with Jesus Christ, to life. The second resurrection, or the resurrection to death, are those who are judged and separated from from God for all eternity. So within the first resurrection, there is an order. People are resurrected at different times, Jesus Christ being the first. There's a bunch of different stuff in the Bible about those resurrections. Christ, the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15 here, Colossians 1, Revelation 1, 18. Then there was this weird passage in Matthew 27, 50 and 53, where after the death of Christ, it talks about People wandering around the city that are resurrected. We don't know what that is. Like, thanks, Matthew, for throwing that one in there. Right? You got to do something with that. Then we know those that are of the church of Christ will be resurrected at the rapture, at the coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul's going to speak about that, that mystery where we're changed in an instant. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, Paul will talk about it there. We know, again, wherever you put the rapture, we know that's a moment where we are resurrected as Christ. Then you have in the book of Revelation, the two witnesses in Jerusalem who are resurrected. That's at a different time. That's kind of a crazy thing. Then you have the Old Testament saints, Daniel chapter 12, at the beginning of the kingdom, rising from the dust, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. And then in Revelation 20, we see the tribulation martyrs, verses 4 through 6. It says this, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So Paul, again, speaking in his larger says, theme, says Christ is the first fruits. He's resurrected from the dead. He becomes a pattern of life to all who will then be resurrected. And they will come in their order, in their bands. They'll be resurrected at their times. Then will come the end. And the end he pictures is when death and every enemy is defeated. And he ties in now this kingdom saying... When he delivers the kingdom to the Father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So he's looking at the very end of things. And he kind of goes back and says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For, this is a 
uh, quote from the Old Testament, he has put all things under his feet. But when he says he has put all things under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So the, the picture here is <clears throat> of Christ's kingdom, number one is it becomes an eternal kingdom. That being when Christ comes to rule and reign, there's no other kingdom that ever pushes that out. It starts and it goes forever. It is the one that has full dominion. The second thing he tells us is we see that risen Christ as the ultimate steward who gives back to his father a full accounting of that faithful stewardship. He comes onto the scene and he is fully faithful, so much so that every single enemy under him is defeated. And so we see in his kingdom reign, the particularly verse 25 says he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus Christ ruling and reigning on earth while enemies are being subdued under him. The Bible has a lot of teaching about this. <clears throat> all enemies being subjected to the rule and reign of Christ on earth. Enemies in nature. Everything wrong about nature will be changed. Even a lion will lay down with a lamb. A kid will be able to pull a cobra out of its hole. Enemies in society. Everyone will come under his rule. There'll be no more war. They'll beat their plows and plowshares and pruning hooks. Or their weapons in the plows and plowshares and pruning hooks. You'll be able to lay out in the streets. Kids will play in the streets. Unafraid. Those nations who don't come to worship him at Jerusalem will be judged by him. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There, there might not be some people who like it, but guess what? Too bad. That's the picture. He will rule, the Bible says, with an iron scepter. He doesn't need to rule heaven when everybody's perfect with an iron scepter. He rules earth with an iron scepter. This world, Psalm 2, 8 and 9 says, Ask of me, a messianic passage, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like potter's vessels. Psalm 110, 1 through 2, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, Rule in the midst of your enemies. This resurrected Jesus Christ is going to be seen on the face of the earth in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning. And if somebody doesn't like it, too bad. Jesus himself would say in Revelation, promising one of the churches, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And Jesus quotes Psalm 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel as I also have received from my father. He shall. This is forward. He speaks in the church age saying this shall happen later. In my rule and reign, I am going to share this with you. And the Bible talks about the Messiah's worldwide kingdom reign being shared by you and I. Thrones promised to the 12 disciples Thrones we see even currently in heavens with the elders. Thrones on the face of the earth. We shall be kings and priests, as was said in Revelation 20. You and I ruling and reigning with this resurrected Christ. The whole point is, this isn't just, uh, you know, a different type of theological outlook. This is the reality. And what Paul's saying is, if Christ is not resurrected doing these things, you and I have no hope to be a part of this, which was promised can't take the resurrection out of this. This is what we're looking forward to. His securing this secures our portion in it. What our hope is, what we're looking forward to. And in the millennial reign for that thousand years, we rule and reign with him. When there's a new heavens and a new earth, we only see one throne in Revelation 22, 3, and it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. We have a unique place and time where we are going to rule and reign with him. And 
Paul here wants to point out the character of this one. Number one, it should uh, cause us to worship him, I think. Certainly because the one who appeared from time to time as the angel of the Lord with the people in the Old Testament showed up with the traveler, the Hebrew Abraham, like a traveler himself. The one who showed up as the captain of the Lord's hosts, who appeared with his people in Israel here and there, and then came as Emmanuel, God with us, in his humility on earth. Was rejected even though he was the true king. Crucified, we saw, as a king, as he was, falsely. Now was totally faithful in his humility and in his death. And now he's resurrected and he is a high priest interceding for us. He has a ministry where we don't see him all the time. But he still runs it faithfully. And guess what? When it's time to do the next ministry, to show up as king and make every knee bow and every tongue confess, he's going to be just as faithful. It's the same one through the whole thing. Writer J.G. Bellet says this in his book, The Son of God. The son himself delights to be all this, the steward or the servant of the will of God whether in grace or in glory, in humiliation or in power. And when we in the spirit of worship consider or recollect who he is throughout all the changes and conditions, we can and will say that changes and conditions, whether the highest or the lowest, are as nothing. What in one sense can raise such a one? Can glory and a kingdom elevate him? Faith finds it easy indeed to see such a one as steward of power and dominion and royal honors when he comes to sit on a throne, just as he was a steward when he traversed in weakness and in humiliation the path of life. Such distances in one sense are nothing to such a one as the Son. That's who he is. It's who we follow. The resurrected Jesus, the same Jesus who was there in his humility, is the same Jesus we will see in his glory. You can't take that part of the message out. And what we see in the end, at the end of all things, 28, Paul says, Now when all things are made subject to him, he's ruling and reigning. And everything is subjected to him. All enemies have been crushed. The last enemy being death. We know at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released for a certain amount of time. We don't know how long. The Bible says that he will lead some astray. They will come up against the king on earth and they will be finished, destroyed. And then Jesus Christ will be judge of all the earth. It will be what the Bible calls the second death. Revelation chapter 20. And everyone who has rejected him will be judged, and then death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And every enemy will be defeated. All sin, all death, all supernatural and all natural powers that would ever work against the Son, they'll all be defeated. He will have subdued all things. And when that moment happens, then it says, the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That the Son did all these things because it was the Father's will. The Father wanted to subdue all things. And there was no better person to use than the Son. And the Son worked out his Father's will on the face of the earth. And when it's finished, what we see is this Christ, this remarkable Christ, handing it back to the Father. What was lost all the way in the beginning in man's sin was Satan's rebellion, all the difficulties and the hardships of the world, all judged, all dealt with, all in finality. Then when there's no more death or sorrow, 
or crying or pain. When the Son has absolute power, what do we say when somebody has absolute power? Corrupts them absolutely, right? What does the Son do? He gives it back to the Father. It's all right again, the way it's supposed to be. Here you go. And then, the Bible says, that's when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Who holds the reins of the eternal kingdom in the end when Christ has made all things right? The Father does. It's the part we all agree on. It's the end of the story. Paul gets all the way to the end, and he wants us to know that a resurrected Jesus Christ is taking a totally subdued world with death defeated and handing it back to the Father. You don't have a resurrection. You don't have that. We don't have the end of the story. All of our purposes and hopes are washed away. But with it, it's like a fairy tale, isn't it? Everything ends actually exactly the way that it should be. God then creates a new heavens and a new earth where there's never any of those things that tainted this world. Again, J.G. Bellet would say this in the same book, when the sun has been thus displayed, as in weakness, as in strength, as on earth and in heaven, from the manger to the throne, as a Nazarene and the Bethlehemite, the Lamb of God and the anointed Lord of all, according to the predestination of eternal counsels, these heavens and earth, which now are, will have done all they had to do. When they have continued unto this display of the sun, they have continued long enough. They may give place. And the soul that has surveyed them as having accomplished such a service may be prepared to hear this from the prophet of God. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth were passed away. The Son of God, the resurrected Son of God, will be displayed in all his glory on this earth as the resurrected Jesus Christ. It is what the plan of the ages is. And it is what you and I get to be a part of. Whatever is happening in your life right now, whatever you're involved in right now, whatever you're caught up in right now, whatever you think is important right now, this is the only thing that's important because it's the only thing that's eternal. What am I doing that matters right now? The only thing that I'm doing that matters right now are the things that will matter then. <laughs> when I follow the resurrected Jesus Christ into his kingdom and into his ultimate victory. That's what the point of your life is. And you have been caught up into this and it has been secured for you and I. It is what our ultimate hope is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, because I live, you shall also live. And what Paul says is, if this is what God's testimony of himself is, if this is what the scriptures say, if this has been the only apostolic message from the beginning, if there is no hope outside of this message, and if all of our resurrections and the ultimate plan of the universe, the literal giving back of the perfected world after every enemy is defeated is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how do you say there is no resurrection? It's a pretty serious thing, this false teaching. Because it's a pretty serious, awesome thing, what we have in Christ Jesus. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have begotten us again unto a living hope. By your resurrection from the, from the dead, that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved for us in heaven that doesn't fade away. Kept by your power. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that there's not a single person on earth under the earth or supernatural being that can step in heaven and take the crown off of your head. 
your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that your plan for us is good. And when the world presses in hard, Lord, and it seems hard to believe these things, or that your ultimate victory is far away, pray you would remind us of this truth through your Holy Spirit and the hope that we have in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.